In-depth journalism in the Memphis community, The Daily Memphian is of Memphis, not just in Memphis, and seeks to tell the stories of this city. TheDailyMemphian.com. Truth in place. This is the Daily Memphian Politics Podcast. I'm Bill Drees. Our main event, our only event this time, is the year in review. Now that 2019 is behind us, some might say locked away, but still kicking and scratching. Nevertheless, we will review some of the issues of the year and the comments that define those moments as heard in our interviews on this podcast and on the WKNO Channel 10 program behind the headlines. We'll end by laying out the election year ahead and a few late notes. But let's start with the afterlife of the ballot question in the October Memphis elections. A half-cent sales tax hike to restore health and pension benefits to police and firefighters five years after the city cut those benefits to all city employees. This was approved by the voters. The police and fire unions put the referendum on the ballot with a petition drive after the council refused to act on the matter. Both unions raised and spent more than $300,000 on the campaign to win passage of the measure. As early voting was underway just a few weeks before Election Day, we had what amounted to a debate on behind the headlines between Memphis Firefighters Association President Thomas Malone and City Council Chairman Kemp Conrad. Conrad responding to a question from Eric Barnes about whether the city has to abide by the referendum results. That followed by Malone. This is the city council. You've been on for, what, 10 years now. You're two two times um, uh, chairman bound to spend that money in the way that the unions would like? Uh, this, this will probably be another thing we can go back and forth on for five or ten minutes. And uh, the, to, the answer is no. The city council uh, will appropriate that money every year. So if people vote yes for this, they're voting to tax themselves. And the language is aspirational on... Okay. Um, so the city council will appropriate it. Uh, how and they can appropriate it however that, they Right, and we don't know let who's going to be on to, the, Let me get Tommy in. Let, we'll come back to you. We'll come back to you. We've got plenty of time, this. and then I'm going to get Bill in. Let me say Are this. Are you worried that the council won't appropriate the way you Not intend? in the least. Not in Why? the least. Why? Why do you trust? Number one, because if you look at it, they know that would create a lawsuit. That would be political suicide for anybody that did that. It, if, if this passes by the citizens, the citizens are passing an ordinance. Instead of the council passing an ordinance, the citizens are passing this ordinance. It's according to the state. And Chairman Conrad can say all he wants and he can talk about politics and who we endorsed and rape crit. Has nothing to do with this. This has, it's a narrow box. They're trying to make it a big box because they haven't listened to the citizens. At the end of 2019, this question was still moving. Incoming Council Chairwoman Patrice Robinson on behind the headlines. And I don't believe that it's enough money to share across the board this time, Kemp. I have to agree with you. It, it's not going to be enough. But I believe that over time, we're going to have to make some shifts. And it might not be that we do 75-25. It might be 60-40. But we're going to have to actually look at those numbers and see how they will impact us over the next 20 to 30 years. But is that restoring the benefits that the council cut under terms of the referendum? So you, if you didn't ask for enough money to restore your benefits, it's not restoring it anyway. <laughs> I'm just being honest about that. You got to have enough money. That was not enough money to do it. Do you have any indication from the police and fire unions that they would be willing to talk about that if that happened? I'm sure they will. 
I, I, they, have, they don't have a choice <laughs> because it has passed. We're going to work with them, but you can't take something to a level that you don't have enough money to do that with. Center stage in this election year was the race for Memphis mayor, of course, with incumbent Jim Strickland being challenged by former Mayor Willie Harrington, County Commissioner Tammy Sawyer, and eight others. That was the order they finished in as well, with Strickland getting a majority of the votes cast at 66%, 28% for Harrington, and 6% for Sawyer. But much of the campaign's back and forth was between Strickland and Sawyer. Sawyer bringing to town CNN commentator Angela Rye, who called Strickland a racist. Rye and Strickland had a disagreement during the MLK 50 observances in 2018, you may remember. So with that in mind, our first question for Sawyer. Do you think that Jim Strickland is a racist? Thanks for asking. You know, first, I'd just like to say thanks for having me and uh, the opportunity to come and speak today when so many debates have been canceled and being able to get what is important to us in this race out is very important. And I hope we get more opportunities like this. But to answer your question, Angela Rye came as a friend and as a supporter. What we need to remember is that the mayor disrespected Angela when she was paid to come to Memphis and speak during MLK 50. He chose not to greet her. Uh, he chose to walk out of the event. Um, and then he went on TV and said, I don't know who she is. In a world where we are continuously watching black women silence, it is not surprising that Angela took offense to that um, and feels that a mayor who continuously upholds uh, systemic racist policies, uh, that she would feel those things about him. And We're, so- Go ahead, finish it, finish it up, sure. For me, Angela has her opinion about the mayor, um, and I feel that she has a right to that opinion. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, what I see in the current administration is a mayor who chooses continuously to silence black people, especially black women, um, who continuously uses his administration uh, to uphold the systemic oppression that we see rampant throughout Memphis, and is not, as we would say, anti-racist and Strickland on Behind the Headlines two weeks later. It's about what happens in Memphis. Our challenges in Memphis are great, meaning they're large. We have real challenges. The violent crime rate's too high. Poverty is too high. Our educational achievement's too low. We have to unite in Memphis behind attacking those challenges. And that's what I've done in my three and a half years in Memphis as Memphis mayor. I've united the city as much as I can to tackle those challenges. If, if the public wanted me, or if I wanted to address national issues, I'd run for Congress. I'm not running for Congress. I'm trying to solve Memphis problems and serve Memphians better. And that, that is a difference. And I think most of Memphis agrees with my position. Shelby County Election Commissioner Benny Smith joined us on this podcast the day after the election was decided and said that's basically his view of the election, too. When he ran uh, in 2015, the city didn't vote for him in large numbers. And it was very impressive to see him yesterday. It was a million people on the ballot like it was like it was uh, the last time. And he mm -hmm. got a very good share of the vote. And that was the citizens way of saying we like the way you're taking the city. He got a large mix. So cities, Memphis is a predominantly black city, uh, especially in turnout when it comes to registered voters. You know from the demographics that I was sending you from, from early voting. So he can really 
you know, hang his hat on saying, I got my right of passage. If, if anybody doubted me the, the, the first time that I won because it was a divided ticket, it was really, you know, he, he earned his right, right of passage through, through, uh, Willie Harrington, which is mm-hmm. a formidable, very electable, uh, uh, opponent. Strickland's campaign consultant Stephen Reed on this podcast telling us after the votes were counted that there was a point in the campaign when the polls began to tighten and there was some thought of Strickland changing his campaign plan. There was a small window of time when the race had tightened up between Harrington and Strickland. Um, Yeah, I think it was in July that it was not an absolute 100% given um, that Strickland would win the race. Now, it was, it, we're talking solid, you know, double digit lead over Harrington, mm-hmm. but uh, the gap was not 60 to 23. In other words, Harrington was starting to kick in with, with some reaction to what he was saying. And I think that was about the time that his, his rhetoric, Specific rhetoric on Mayor Strickland began to escalate at about that time. But Harrington's numbers never came up. Okay. Um, what, what happened is it was the first poll that we had introduced Tammy Sawyer into the equation because we had polled uh, prior to her even entering the race. Uh, now we did a, um, we did positives and negatives on a lot of different candidates and threw her in. So we knew, you know, we knew how low her name recognition was and, and, uh, how that probably would play out. Um, but it was what happened is the entry of her into the race and the entry of LaMichael Wilson being polled also opened up the undecided. Now, we offered Harrington time on Behind the Headlines, the same opportunity we offered to Strickland and Sawyer. He declined pursuing a campaign strategy in his sixth bid for mayor of little contact with the media and no extended sit-down interviews. His comments at campaign events were more critical of Sawyer than of Strickland. Harrington said Sawyer was splitting the black vote. Reed, who is on Strickland's campaign team, says that wasn't the case. There was always a perception in this race that Tammy Sawyer's entry into the race would somehow take votes from Dr. Harrington. That was an absolute fallacy. Tammy Sawyer's vote was coming from Mayor Strickland. She was not, she was either taking change vote um, because Harrington basically was representing the past and the way things have been for so long. Um, or she was directly going into uh, City Council District 5, which was Strickland's former district, where she was doing her heaviest campaigning and seemed to be doing most of her uh, town hall meetings and, and um, uh, her meet and greets. So I think the thing that would surprise people the most is there was never going to be a split African-American vote in this race. Um if anything, you, you saw Tammy Sawyer pulling pulling more white voters than she did African-American voters. And if you look at the precincts and you look at the results of the race now, you're going to see that, too. Her heaviest vote was uh, uh, 22% she got in uh, uh, the Midtown Evergreen area. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was the district that Strickland represented uh, for eight years, too. 
Questions going forward from the city elections of 2019. Where does the city's new activism of the last five years go based on a 6% showing in the mayor's race? And what will that activism look like on the Memphis City Council where there are six new members? Questions for the new year. In 2020, the only countywide race on the ballot is a race for Shelby County General Sessions Court Clerk, with incumbent clerk Ed Stanton not seeking a third full term. 17 candidates, 13 Democrats and four Republicans are in the March 3rd primaries going for this office. Four of the 17 work in various leadership positions in the clerk's office. Two others are on the Shelby County Commission, one a former city council member and another the former probate court clerk. Last year, we saw a similar contest pitting experience in the office against name recognition. Former Memphis City Council member Myron Lowry won the city court clerk's office four years after he left the council. Delicia DeGraffery, chief administrator of the clerk's office, finishing fourth in a nine-way race. In a perfect world, should the clerk's position be an elected position? No. (laughs) I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think that the position should be an elected position due to the fact that what the duties of the clerk's office entail. I believe that the office should have someone there with experience that has information and knowledge about how budgeting works and also about policies policies and procedures. It should not be a popularity contest. There was also an attempt at a coalition among some of the city council candidates. Six of them signed a Pledge for Progress platform put together by Kat Allen, one of the six who ran for Super District 8, Position 2 in her case, and an unsuccessful challenge of incumbent Martavius Jones. When I've been out talking to voters over the last several months, um, one of the things that I hear is, I just want somebody in office that is going to be honest and work with other people to get things done. You know, people um, in Memphis and certainly across the country believe that politics is about as divisive as it's ever been. And so this came from a place of wanting to unite and signal boost the worthy message of progressive candidates and also wanting to show the voters of Memphis that there are, in fact, people with smart policy ideas and a desire to serve who are going to work together. We'll get to Jones in just a second, but at this point, I'll point out that the council races weren't as simple as incumbents versus challengers, although every incumbent council member had a challenger this past year. Super District 9 position 2 incumbent Ford Canale was among those who campaigned for re-election on sticking with the current game plan and priorities at City Hall. I think Memphis is a great place. Uh, you know, my family business has been here for over 175 years. Memphis certainly means a lot to my family. And I want to, that's part of the reasons why I ran. Uh, mm-hmm. I want to ensure that Memphis continues. Um, and we've made a lot of progress and we're on the, uh, the right road. We, you know, I think we're, we're almost, uh, and maybe, maybe we already are to, to be an it city. Uh, but we're definitely on the road to success. Now back to council incumbent Martavius Jones on the podcast with a very different outlook. One of the things that I I say about Memphis, if we, we just have to ask ourselves as I was driving on Cleveland to get here, is this the presentation that I want our city to have for somebody who's visiting Memphis? And I'd say no. And, and, and Bill, I'm probably one of the cheapest people you're ever meeting in your life. (laughs) But I like value. Now, if, if I'm getting something, if I'm paying something, I want to know that I'm getting something in return. 
and you know, in in my years in public service, I think that Memphis has some very reasonable people. From the, if if you're going to raise their taxes or do something to cost them a little bit more, they want to see, they want to know what it is for. But if you hear people complaining about the potholes, you hear people and the administration, to its credit, has done something about the curbside pickup from a solid waste standpoint. Those things cost money. In Memphis federal court, the administration losing in its bid to change the 1978 consent decree forbidding police surveillance of citizens. Police director Michael Rawlings on behind the headlines saying that surveillance was not political and was necessary for public safety in an upswing in protest, starting with the 2016 bridge protest. So we had an obligation to protect our citizens. And guess what? Nothing happened. City Chief Legal Officer Bruce McMullen with Rawlings on our show the morning after the ruling from Federal Judge John McCullough. The interview was the administration's first after the ruling. And if you think you hear us improvising, you would be right. By Judge McCullough's ruling in this, where does that stand? Can Memphis police officers get intelligence via the gang unit from other agencies that are not covered by the consent decree? From my reading of it, uh, at this point, uh, the answer is yes, but we have to verify that that information that we receive uh, does not, uh, their accumulation of that information did not violate the consent decree. All right. Um, Director, you you, you talked about counter-protest and and the instability that's represented by another protest coinciding with yet another protest for your officers and and for the public. Um, But some of the surveillance in this was specifically aimed at activists. It was specifically aimed at at things like book recommendations that were made on, on Facebook. Do you think the police department went too far in that or in having an officer open up a Facebook account under an assumed name? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So uh, I'll go back to the decree. So if you go back to the decree, the judge clearly says that the decree, the 1978 decree, imposes significant burdens on the Memphis Police Department. He also says it is an extremely high standard. So I think what's important is that no one's constitutional rights were violated. The, The decree, very difficult to abide by. So when you go back to these you know, uh, some of the stuff that you've said I haven't seen, the the decree talks about political intelligence and talks about the difficulties of navigating that water using modern technology. Um, And and I think that when, uh, you know, again, our officers, you know, the judge clearly says that these mistakes were probably made because of our interpretation of the decree. At year's end, some of the new city council members were at least thinking about different ways of looking at the city's historic problem with violence. Some opposition on the council already to broader residency requirements that will be a ballot question for city voters on the November 2020 ballot, but more votes on the body 
for putting this on the ballot. And new council member Dr. Jeff Warren is distributing copies of Thomas App's book, Bleeding Out, Apt, a Harvard Kennedy School of Government expert who worked on juvenile justice issues here in Memphis when he was with the Obama administration Justice Department. App telling us there is a link between violence and poverty, but going after violence should come first. Yeah, I think that uh, there's a conventional wisdom uh, about violence, which is that uh, violence is the inevitable consequence of root causes like poverty um, and inequality. Uh, But in fact, the most rigorous social science suggests that uh, a very common sense idea, which is if you want to reduce violence, you actually have to directly focus on that violence itself. And what I argue in the book is that if you can get excessively high rates of violence under control. It'll make everything you do in Memphis in terms of improving economic and social equality easier. It'll make it easier to improve educational outcomes, health outcomes, economic and commercial development outcomes. As the new year begins, Warren would like to arrange for App to come here and talk with the council in more detail about that and other points in his book. Shelby County Mayor Lee Harris marked one year in office this past September with a long-awaited proposal to fund the Memphis Area Transit Authority to the tune of $10 million. His idea, a $145 county fee on every third car owned by individuals and companies. And on our podcast, Harris doubling down on his 2018 campaign claim that improving the city's bus system is a critical issue to the city's general future. We are we are in the midst of a big shift in terms of what we talk about in this community. And so I think it's time to just embrace the shift. Uh, We are in the midst of a conversation around poverty, and we have just entered that conversation in the last two or three years. That is a top priority, and that's what we expect our local elected officials to talk about. I think we are also in the midst of another shift where we have to talk about our environment and what we can all do collectively to responsibly protect that environment. I agree that hasn't been talked about before uh, and that would represent a shift, but that's where we are and that's where we have to be. Shelby County Property Assessor Melvin Burgess just passed the one-year mark putting together a task force to find ways to raise property values in Orange Mound or at least question why they are so low. We went and looked on the roll and we found out that literally there's an economic wall built around Orange Mound, Tennessee. Because if you go east of Orange Mound, you got the University of Memphis. If you go west of Orange Mound, you have Cooper Young. Then if you go north of Orange Mound, you got Chickasaw Garden. So the question we were asking ourselves is why do if we find ourselves those areas around Orange Mound, properties are going up, valued up, and however, Orange Mound properties are devalued. So getting to your question is just this. It could be at a no point of return. You know, we talked to uh, what's really a good um, reference or a good um, uh, person on our task force. His name is Dr. Sunderman from the University of Memphis. And he literally said that this could be a situation where the neighborhood could be so far gone, it could be at no point return and trying to bring it back. And party business this year. Shelby County Democrats had an unopposed race for party chairman that went to Michael Harris, who had his law license suspended earlier for serious ethical violations. I believe in accountability, and I believe that any leader who is seeking to um, lead an organization or a group of people has to be committed to being responsible and accountable. So in this 
situation for the mistakes I've made. I accept the responsibility and I absolutely believe that um, that was necessary. And now I'm moving forward from that. And, and in terms of uh, how it impacts my ability to lead the party and whether I should be chair, absolutely, I should be chair. Uh, the requirements for being chair uh, do not lie in the mistakes that a person has made. Shelby County Republicans trying to rebuild after Democrats swept every countywide office in the 2018 county elections and improved their majority on the 13-member county commission to eight. They went with attorney Chris Tudor, who also ran unopposed. The real issues that we're focusing on, the real issues that we're going to be isolating are going to be local in nature. That means are we getting companies in here to create good paying jobs, uh, especially in our low income neighborhoods? Um, do we have good schools? Do we have a lot of options for parents to make sure their kids are getting the best education? Is our government living within its means? Is it accountable? to the people uh, are we keeping property taxes low for working families so we're going to focus like a laser on those issues my speech to the convention was more what do we hold in common the fundamental principles less what are we going to focus on at a local level so uh, again I, I don't i don't want to get distracted from the kind of the, the toxic you know cultural wars that that i think embroil us so much um there's a diversity of opinion within the party. There's a diversity of opinion in, in, in the community about some of these contentious issues, but we're going to focus on on the local ones that, that, that really, I think, have, have much more of a deeper impact on on people right here. Mm. Are, are, are there independents and, and Democrats in, in Memphis who you believe will vote for identified Republican candidates for local office based on on that common ground. I definitely think so. I think you, you've seen that historically. Again, we are going to find, um, I'm not a tribalist. Uh, I'm a Republican because generally speaking, the Republican party, um, is the vehicle for, for my values. Um, that doesn't mean I'm doctrinaire. That doesn't mean I line up down, you know, down the list of all the issues. And I, I would say the overwhelming majority of people in the party w w would share that. So here is your 2020 election year then. March 3rd, Tennessee presidential primaries and general sessions court clerk primaries locally. Early voting for that is February 12th through the 25th. August 6th, state and federal primaries, that's the Tennessee legislature, congressional seats, and one of the two U.S. Senate seats, the one currently held by Lamar Alexander, as well as the winners of the clerk primaries from March in a countywide general election, and about half of the seats on the Shelby County Schools Board in nonpartisan races. Early voting there, July 17th to August 1st. November 3rd, state and federal general elections topped by the presidential general election, and in Memphis, the ballot question on expanding the residency requirement for police and firefighters. Early voting for that, October 14th through the 29th. Late notes, former Shelby County Democratic Party Chairman Corey Strong, who had been working toward an August primary challenge of Democratic Congressman Steve Cohen, now says he may be looking at another race. No firm decision yet and no word on what the other race could be. To our east, a change in the Tennessee congressional delegation, Republican Congressman Phil Rowe, 
announcing just before we record that he will not be seeking re-election this year. He is the 22nd Republican in the House to announce his retirement. Behind the headlines this week, an encore presentation of our recent interview of Richard Smith of FedEx and the Greater Memphis Chamber. We talk about both a lot on the show, recorded as he was leaving his role at the Chamber and taking on new responsibilities at FedEx. You can also hear that program on the Behind the Headlines podcast. Subscribe to The Daily Memphian at dailymemphian.com. You can subscribe to this podcast and our others at Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can find us on Twitter at bdrees and at Daily Memphian. I'm Bill Drees. The Daily Memphian Politics Podcast is produced by Natalie Van Gundy. In-depth journalism in the Memphis community, the Daily Memphian is of Memphis, not just in Memphis, and seeks to tell the stories of this city. TheDailyMemphian.com. Truth in place.